Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about a paper entitled The Failure of the Flood by David J.A. Kleins. Kleins is an author who I identify as one of the foremost scholars on the book of Job. Kleins wrote the biblical word commentary on Job. And he really understands what's going on in the text. And he makes sense of it in a way which I haven't seen any other author do. So imagine my delight when I found out that he also has a discussion of the flood narrative in Genesis 6. This he calls the failure of the flood. And it's an intriguing title. And you wonder what exactly has failed about the flood. And let's read his first paragraph. No event in human history was intended to make such a difference as the coming of the flood. It was planned to bring human history to an end. If it had happened according to the divine design, nothing else would have. When I took my boys on our cross-country trip this summer, this is the passage that I made them memorize, this Genesis 6 passage, starting in Genesis 5. And the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry I have made them. And think back to the quote by Kleins. God wanted to destroy the earth. He wanted to transform the earth undo all his creation, and it wasn't supposed to be a restarting of the earth. It was supposed to be an utter, complete destruction of everything. In this text, there is no hint of a rebirth. There is no hint that God would retry with something else. God is regretting his creation. God wishes he had not created the earth. God wants to restore the way the world is, to before he had created it. That is the divine intention. That is the transformative event, which it, it didn't end up that way in this very text that we're going to be reading. It didn't turn out that way. And in that idea, in that respect, and others, the flood was a failure. Kleins writes, As it turned out, the flood was a failure. What might have been the most seismic of historical events left no mark at all on human history. The world is no different, humans are no different, and no one, not even the deity, apparently learned anything from the experience. I might take a little bit of issue with that last line because in chapter 8, God does say that he learned that man has evil intentions from his youth. And then God changes his expectations. So God's expectations mirror a more realistic sense of how humans behave, whereas God's not going to, again, be sorry for having created him. That, that's over and that's done with. Never needs to happen again because God knows what to expect this time. So there is a sense of learning in the story. Kleins writes, The biblical narrative of the flood reflects the failure of the event it purports to recount. Its narrative logic fails, the ethics of the deity as depicted are questionable, and the theological import of the narrative is ugly. 
On top of that, scholarly commentary on the narratives is so flimsy and uncritical as to be a failure in itself. He's pointing out the obvious, that people who talk about these events, they don't depict what's going on. They don't understand what's going on. They're not critical of it. They're not trying to make sense of it. They're trying to usually override it with what they want to bring to the text. It's, it's, it's terrible. All the commentary on this is terrible. Kleins writes, According to the biblical narrative, the flood is determined upon by the deity because humans are wicked. He is sorry he has created humans and resolves to blot them out with a flood of waters. The universal flood he plans to bring upon the earth will destroy not only all the humans, but also all animals and the earth itself, Genesis 6.13. His design is therefore to undo the whole work of creation. In the event, according to the narrative, that is the opposite of what happens. The earth survives. The waters dry up. The animals are released onto the earth to breed abundantly, 8.17. And humanity, because of whom the annihilating flood has been sent, is charged with being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth yet again. 9, one. So the deity not only totally changes his mind about the wisdom of creating the world, he also totally changes his mind about the wisdom of uncreating. The narrative, however, does not say that. It spends some time explaining how God decided to destroy the world and how he felt about his original creation, that he was sorry he had created humans and it grieved him to his heart, but does not spend a moment over how he felt about reversing his decision to destroy the world or over how or why he made yet another U-turn. Usually when open theists turn to Genesis 6 to show that God repents, they only get one of the two repentances that are in the text. I'm, I'm sure there's more. You could probably count the repentance over God figuring out about humankind in the chapter 8. But in chapter 6 itself, God resolves to destroy all of the world and then he changes his mind and decides to show grace to Noah in that order. So within the chapter 6, there are two repentances, two repentances. God changes his mind twice. And Kleins points out that up until Noah is introduced to the story, the focus is all on God. It's all about what's God thinking, what, what, what's God's motivations for his actions, and then the entire narrative switches to Noah. And so the second repentance, it doesn't give God's motivation. It doesn't give God's thoughts. It's kind of a secretive change of heart, the second change of heart. Kleins writes, How did the righteousness of one man manage to subvert the cosmic decision of the deity that was motivated both rationally, human wickedness, and emotionally, God's regret? Was there some sort of calculus at work in the divine mind? of the order that would declare the presence of ten righteous persons in Sodom enough to spare the city? If so, why did Noah's righteousness not spare the earth from the flood? Or was Noah's finding favor in the eyes of Yahweh an arbitrary and emotional event, as finding favor generally is? Let's think about what Kleins is saying here. When God decided to destroy the entire earth, everything in the earth, Noah was alive at that time. Noah was righteous when that initial decision was made. So why is it not till after that decision to destroy the world that Noah finds favor? What manner is this finding favor? What, what is it? 
we are not told God's motivations. We're not told God's thought process. The text is silent, so we have to speculate. Klein's second questions for the text is this. The contrast between humanity's wickedness and Noah's righteousness might have been expected to lead to salvation from the flood for Noah, with him dying eventually of old age, but not the survival of humanity in general. The deity surely intends that outcome. So what is it about Noah that leads the deity to rescind this decision to destroy the world? What Kleins is saying here is, yeah, okay, let's say that God says, I'm not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. Okay, how does that lead to salvation and repopulation of the earth? That's not explained. It could have, it could have easily been that God saves alive Noah and just lets him live and die of old age. We're not told why saving of Noah in, enables God to give the general mandate that the world would just be repopulated with human beings who he's trying to wipe out. I love this next part of the paper. Kleins goes on and quotes scholarly opinion about Genesis and then has little comments about what they say. And so let, let's hear Kleins. How does scholarly tradition manage this failure of the flood narrative? By eliminating the conflict between Yahweh's first and second decisions. Thus, and he's quoting someone else here, the biblical story of the flood relates how God destroyed the existing world but saved Noah and his family and representatives of each animal species in the ark. Klein's comments, No, it relates how God first decided to destroy the world he had created and then changed his mind again. I love the directness. Then he goes on and quotes someone else, The flood resulted from the Lord's decision to destroy all living creatures because of the great wickedness of man. Klein's comments, Indeed, but was not the subsequent decision not to destroy all living creatures worth a mention? Kleins quotes someone saying, God repented of his creation and determined to destroy both men and beasts. Only the righteous Noah and his family would be spared. Kleins comments, No, God could not have decided at one and the same time to destroy all that lived and to spare Noah and his family and the animals and so ensure that humans and animals alike would not be wiped out. That would have been a logical impossibility. There must have been two decisions, the second effectively canceling out the first. I'll add my own comment here. It could be the case that God's initial decision was hyperbolic. You know, usually when we are talking, our speech patterns are use hyperbole. I'm going to destroy that entire team or, or all of Alexander the Great's men were wiped out in such and such war. You know, it's, it doesn't necessarily mean all. It could be just a hyperbolic statement. But I, I admit, Klein's reading is much more straightforward and uh, easier to understand because God really wants to destroy everything that's living, even the animals, even the plants. Why, why are the animals, why are the plants being destroyed? Why is the whole earth being destroyed for the wickedness of man just to be repopulated? Couldn't you have just killed man by themselves and left the animals alone? Instead of this uh, convoluted scheme where God's deciding to wipe out everyone and at the same time deciding to save Noah, it complicates the narrative. And we add in the fact that God is repenting, making man. These are successive generations. So this judgment is a judgment against mankind. 
and not against just the men that are living at that period. And after the flood is done, God resolves never again to judge man in the same fashion and try to wipe out all man again. This is talking about a global destruction of a species, the species of man. I think it's a big mistake to read the Genesis 6 narrative as a judgment against, it's not even a judgment, God's just undoing what he created. He's not saying, you're wicked, so I'm going to kill you. He's saying, I regret my own action in creating mankind, and I'm just undoing that action. I'm undoing my own creation. It's not a judgment. God's not angry. God is sad. God is sorry. He's just undoing what he did. And so this is not a judgment against individuals for their individual acts. This is a judgment against mankind because of who mankind is. And it's not until God comes to terms with who mankind is that he resolves never again to try to undo his creation. The next part of Kleins's paper is on ethics. And in this section, Kleins wonders if what Yahweh does in the text is any better than what mankind was already doing to each other. And one of the ways he illustrates this is that he says three times the human fault is called a corruption or destruction with the word shakath. The earth was corrupt in God's sight. God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all the flesh had corrupted its way. So what does the deity determine to do? Why? To corrupt all humanity and the earth with them. That's the same word. Shakath. Our English versions squeamishly will not allow the same verb to be used of the deity's action as of humanity's. So all of them I've consulted have Yahweh destroying the earth rather than corrupting it. Yeah, clients might be missing what this uh, judgment, it's not a judgment, it's not a judgment, what this uh, action is meant to do, what Yahweh's actions are meant to do in this text. The actions are meant to undo God's creation. There's not going to be a compromise. God is sorry, not that man has become evil. God is sorry in his own actions of making these beings who would become so corrupt. He didn't know they were going to become this corrupt. He didn't know that they had this capacity in their nature to become this evil. And so what does he do? He's he's not looking for some, you know, compromise. He's not looking for reforming them. He says, why did I make these guys? Why did I make these guys? I'm just going to destroy them all. So I think Kleins might miss the boat. Yeah, no pun intended on this one. Kleins then starts going into the reasons behind the flood. And he says, two sentences in the flood narrative especially attract my attention. And he quotes this, Yahweh saw the wickedness of humanity was great in the earth, and every imagine of the thoughts of its heart was only evil continually. A similar sentence occurs later in the narrative, the imagination of the heart of humans is evil from their youth. The second one's coming from 821. But notice that that the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. Now I read that as hyperbole, but he tries to make the point that this is the case, that it is hyperbolic and you can't believe these in a literal sense. He says, now this cannot be a satisfactory justification for any kind of acceptable theological statement since it is manifestly untrue. We only have to form in our minds its opposite. Yahweh saw that the goodness of humanity was great in the earth and that every imagination 
of the thoughts of his heart was only good continually to know immediately that such an extreme and unsettled judgment is absurd. You can no more believe the one statement than the other. It may be a petty point, but Noah was one of the generation of the flood. And if he is righteous, the comprehensiveness of the statement of human wickedness cannot be sustained. Yeah, of course, these two verses are hyperbolic. It's not every single thought that someone ever has from their youth is only evil. It's not a Calvinist notion of total depravity, where even if someone does a good thing, they're doing it with selfish motivations and then are doing evil. It's, it's not what's being communicated in the Genesis narrative. It's just not. And, and as a case in point, Noah is considered righteous. So obviously, the text does not apply to Noah. It's a hyperbole. It's hyperbolic. Kleins writes, I surmise that the extravagance of the language is dictated by the need to offer a justification for the horror of the genocide divinely willed and executed by the flood. If all humanity is to be snuffed out for its crimes, those crimes will need to be the most reprehensible imagined. Well, maybe, but uh, isn't it just as likely that God is thinking hyperbolically when he sees his failed creation and that emotional drive is what motivates God to destroy all of humanity and that's what the text is communicating to the reader? I think that might be more probable. Kleins then goes on to talk about the continuing human sin. It is rarely recognized that the reason given by the narrative for sending of the flood appears towards the end of the narrative as the reason why another flood will not be sent. The wording is slightly different, but the sense seems to be identical. All right, so if any listener is going to get two things out of this podcast, number one, there's two repentances in the Genesis narrative. And this is the second thing that needs to be understood by everyone that for the exact same reason that God destroyed the world, God uses that same justification, that same reasoning to never again destroy the world. This is a change of divine standards. God is lowering his standards. There is a change in God and how he judges, what he expects of humankind, and what he learns about humankind. There is a change because for the exact same reason he destroyed the world, he decides for that exact same reason never to destroy the world again. The change is not in human actions. The change is in divine standards, expectations. This also gives us some other theological conclusions. Kleins writes, Whether the sinfulness of humanity is the reason why another flood will not occur, or whether another flood will not occur despite the sinfulness of humanity, Kleins is describing two different ways to take this verse 21 in chapter 8. He says, In both cases, it is being affirmed that humanity is permanently sinful both before and after the flood. And then he writes, and pay attention here, this is a powerful theological statement. It reinforces the extravagant assessment of humanity in 6.5, but it also lets slip the fact that, according to the flood narrative itself, the flood changed nothing. The flood, therefore, was pointless. It is not just that it achieved nothing and that the world was no better off after than before it, it is not a question of efficiency or effectiveness. More importantly, it is a moral issue at stake. It is bad enough to destroy humanity on account of sins, but it was worse to do so 
when thereafter it is acknowledged that the perennial and unrelieved sinfulness will never again be a reason for wiping out humanity. The failure of the flood is fundamentally the deity's failure. So what was the flood meant to do? The flood was meant to destroy God's creation, to undo his creation. Not only does it not undo God's creation because the earth flourishes afterwards, mankind repopulates the earth, animals repopulate the earth, vegetation repopulates the earth. It doesn't undo God's creation. And then and then what was it supposed to do? What what made the flood necessary was because of all the sinfulness. And then after the flood, God acknowledges that sin's going to be repopulating the earth as well. So the flood itself as a divine event was pointless. It was in vain. I'm kind of reminded of the verse in Jeremiah where God says, Oh, I punished your children in vain. Sometimes God's acts have no meaningful consequences, no long-lasting consequences. This wasn't a judgment against a specific generation. This wasn't a judgment that's going to reoccur in the future. It doesn't change anything. Mankind's just as sinful as before the flood. You always get the preachers who try to take the flood and put it into some long-term biblical narrative. And they say, well, God was just showing to us uh, different ways of dealing with things. And he was teaching us that he's tried before in various ways to reach us, but none of them really worked. And those were just a lesson for us to learn. That's not, that's not what's going on in this text. The text doesn't suggest that. The text doesn't affirm those motivations to God. And that's, that's an ex post facto understanding of the text. By people, it seems like they just want to say that the entire Bible is written as this uh, continuing narrative to speak to us today, to teach us in today's world. And God was just slowly teaching people as they go. But that's not God's motivations in the text. God is sorry. God is grieved. Not about man's sin, but his own action in creating man. The motivations attributed to the God in the text are not these these motivations that are ascribed by later commentators on the text. Modern commentators who think that the, the flood was an object lesson for us today rather than what it was, an undoing of God's creation. Another thing I find very funny is the statement, that last statement of Klein's, the failure of the flood is fundamentally the deity's failure. And Calvinists will always try to get open theists to make little quotable quotes like this. And a Calvinist would like, pass out if they heard an open theist say this because they would take that sentence and they'd run with it oh open theism makes god a failure well what is the text about what does the text say our arguments our understanding of god they can't be based in like our little conjectures oh i just made up my god in my own mind and i get so offended when people say anything else even when they're talking about the actual text of the bible what the bible says Dude, you're not a biblical scholar. You don't know what you're talking about. You're ill-informed, you're illiterate, and you just want to start a little cult that you created in your own mind. That's not based on the Bible. Not based on the Bible. Kleins makes quick work of uh, scholars who comment on this in disingenuous manners. There's uh, Gerhard von Rad, and he says, The same condition which in the prologue is the basis for God's judgment in the epilogue reveals God's grace and providence. The contrast between God's punishing anger and a supporting grace, which pervades the whole Bible, is here presented almost inappropriately, almost as indulgent, 
an adjustment by God towards man's sinfulness. For our narrator, the flood is the last judgment, but one in which God checks sin's spread on the earth, a judgment to be sure, at which at its end reveals more strongly than the stories of the fall and Cain a wonderful saving will of God. Klein's comments, It needs to be pointed out that the saving that appears at the end of the flood narrative is no more than the deity's saving of humanity from himself. If he had not decided on a flood, no saving would have been necessary. And against Vonrad, the flood has not even delivered the benefit of a checking of sin, as A21 presently notes. The flood narrative is not about grace. It's not about salvation. It might be useful for illustrations of those things, but the narrative itself is not about that. Here are Klein's concluding thoughts, and he's not a big fan of the Genesis story. He doesn't like it. Uh, you see in his ethics section that he criticizes the actions that happened in the story. He writes, if after the flood the deity can decide to be long-suffering and patient, he's, he's critiquing another scholarly commentary on Genesis. Why could he have not decided that before the flood and spared humanity his massacre? What is it that he has learned from the actual execution of his plans for the flood that he could have not envisioned before he carried them out? Nothing has changed in humanity, and we're driven to suppose that before the flood the deity could not really imagine what the devastation would look like. Now that it has occurred, he finds himself too tender-hearted to let that happen again. Is that it? He writes unironically, some enlightened parents, and he's not talking about me, I'm not one of the enlightened parents he's talking about. Some enlightened parents of our day will not allow Noah's Ark into their children's toy cupboards. Me, I'll make my kids memorize those verses. And will never entertain their offspring with the tale. Not me, I'll make them memorize and understand it because it's critical for us to understand God's changing relationship with mankind. How God has learned and grown over the years, over the biblical narrative. Klein's right, so saving themselves much confusion of face. Well, I teach uh, second and third graders for Sunday school. And one girl, she's like, oh, God loves everyone. Well, God killed people in the flood. And she didn't believe it. She didn't believe that God killed parents and babies and just killed everyone. And, you know, it, it caused some confusion in the classroom. But I insisted, it's like, what do you think happened in the flood? What do you think the flood did? So I'm not one of these people who are avoiding this confusion of face. Klein's right. It might be proposed that commentaries on Genesis should likewise be locked away from impressionable adults. Maybe I'm one of these impressionable adults. Until there should be published a truly critical example of the genre, a volume that does not unthinkingly rehearse the unloving ideology of the biblical narrative, perhaps that would make a difference. Klein's is kind of funny here. He's he's like Boyd and he's like uh, these uh, people who try to gloss over all the narratives of the Old Testament and try to make him into love. Even open theists, you know, like Gregory Boyd and, and some people I interact with on almost a daily basis, they'll try to reinterpret every story in light of love. Oh, if that doesn't seem very nice, we just have to reread the story until we reread it in the correct manner that fits our narrative of who God is. Yeah, I'm not convinced. And Klein's, he wants to believe in this loving ideology that he wants to impose on the Bible, on Christianity, but he can also read. He can also read. That's why I like Klein's. He can read. And he proposes that some of the stories in the Bible do not line up 
with this systematized ideas about God and what God must be to be loving. And that's pretty ironic, right? A lot of these people who are prone to criticize Kleins would basically and fundamentally agree with Kleins on God's nature and God, how God should act. The only difference, the only difference is Kleins is reading and other people are trying to gloss over. Well, that ends Klein's paper, The Failure of the Flood. Our biggest takeaways, number one, is the double repentance that's happening in Genesis 6. God resolves to undo his creation, then ultimately decides to allow his creation to continue on and to thrive. God also decides never again to destroy man, for the exact same reason God initially decided to destroy man. The change is in the nature and character of God. Like the Calvinists will often say, any change that appears to happen in God is only a relational change. God's not really changing. The change is just man being positionally different to God. But that's not what's going on in this text. Their change is in God. God is changing his standards. God is changing how he acts based on what he has learned, what he's internalized, what he's learned to accept. For all these reasons, Genesis 6 continues to be a powerful narrative on open theism, talking about the basic concepts. Maybe not your philosophical open theism where people are talking about contingently knowing future events, but biblical open theism, where God reacts and learns and changes. God's relationship with mankind grows in ways that were unforeseen. God's learning. God's learning in this text. If you have questions or comments about this podcast, feel free to put that on the God is Open webpage or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook companion page. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 